No pain, no gain. Have you ever suspected that maybe, just maybe, in some small, relatively inconsequential way, you might just might be just a tiny bit of a sadist? Good. Because as much as you love your protagonist, your goal is to craft a plot that forces her to confront head-on just about everything she spent her entire life avoiding. You have to make sure the harder she tries, the harder it gets. Her good deeds will rarely go unpunished. Sure, Every now and then, it'll seem like everything's okay, but that's only because you're setting her up for an even bigger fall. You want her to relax and let her guard down a little, the better to wallop her when she least expects it. You never want to give her the benefit of the doubt, regardless of how much you feel she's earned it, because if you do, the one thing she won't earn is her status as a hero. The irony is you aren't being a sadist at all. You're doing it for her own good because you want her to. As they used to say back in elementary school, live up to her true potential. For that, she needs your unflinching help. Sure, everyone says they want to be the best that they can be. Tomorrow or the next day, you know, when the time is right, hooey, there is no right time. There's only now. And right now, your job is to see that circumstances beyond your protagonist's control fling her out of her easy chair and into the fray. A story is an escalating dare, and its goal is to make sure your protagonist is worthy of her goal. This means that as difficult as it may be, when it comes to the care and feeding of your protagonist, you have to be mean to her. Hold her souls to the fire, even when she starts to squirm. Even after she cries, Uncle! After all, the last thing you want is a hero who is all hat and no cattle. But wait, you may be thinking, that's just true of commercial fiction, isn't it? Commercial fiction, they say, is plot-driven. So lots of stuff has to happen, and it has to build and have consequences. Literary novels don't really need something as contrived and surface as an actual plot, since they're character-driven. Slice of life and all that, right? Actually wrong. Very wrong, in fact. Here's the myth. Literary novels are character-driven, so they don't need a plot. Here's the reality. A literary novel has just as much plot as a mass-market potboiler, if not more. Since the serious literature is less prone to quote-unquote big events than commercial fiction is, it is actually more in need of a well-constructed plot than anything Jackie Collins ever dreamed of. In literary fiction, the plot must be far more layered, intricate, and finely woven in order to illuminate subtler and more nuanced themes. Character-driven novels rely a lot less on sinking ships. 
falling meteors and tidal waves, and a lot more than a missed gesture, a quick nod, a moment's hesitation, which in the hands of a great writer can feel more earth-shattering than a nine-point earthquake. But make no mistake, literary fiction still revolves around an escalating series of challenges that the protagonist must must brave because no matter how keenly honed the protagonist, he still has to want something real bad. And if that desire doesn't put him to the test, yes, just as in a pot boiler, it's baptism by fire. Then he, the end the narrative he inhabits, will remain flat and uninvolving. Remember, A story revolves around events that force the protagonist to come to grips with a difficult inner issue, which ironically is something literary novels are far more geared to convey. So don't fall prey to this tired old saw. Instead, kick it to the curb, poetically if you must. Here's a case study, Sullivan's Travels, The Evolution of a Bumpy Knight. We've admitted that yes, no matter how much we love our protagonist, if he wants to be the center of attention in an actual story, is going to be in for a bumpy night. How bumpy? At first, not very. In the beginning of the protagonist's quest, tends to look easy to him, that is. It has to, because just like in life, if he knew the buckets of blood, sweat, and tears his hard-won triumph would require, he probably wouldn't even get out of bed. Luckily, neither we nor our protagonist ever know how hard it's going to be. Take, for instance, John L. Sullivan, the privileged young film director and protagonist of Preston Sturge's classic 1941 film, Sullivan's Travels. Tired of directing successful yet meaningless pieces of fluff, And you only have to hear the title of his latest film, Hey Hey in the Hayloft, to get the picture. Sully wants to direct a serious drama. Quote, I want this to be a a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity, he says, brushing off his worried producer's hopeful question, but with a little sex in it. When it's pointed out to Sully that he has no actual experience in suffering of any kind, he instantly agrees, but instead of giving up, he decides there's a simple solution. He'll suffer. How hard can it be? So he goes to the wardrobe department, picks out sufficiently raggedy clothes, which he dons with his butler's help, then hitchhikes out of town with a dime in his pocket But rather than suffering, he experiences only mild annoyance at the hands of middle-aged man-crazy widow and soon finds himself back in Hollywood. Realizing this suffering business isn't as easy as poor people make it seem, he sets out again. But the studio, now worried he might actually find the trouble he's so determined to get into, insists that a large mobile home chock full of babysitters follow him just in case. This time, the only thing he suffers is fools. When this doesn't work, Sully balks and ups the ante, hitting the road again, 
at last riding the rails with actual hobos. Now he sees genuine suffering and devastating poverty. He sleeps on the floor, he goes hungry, but there's a big difference between being poor and being broke. Especially when back home you're rich. Strike three. This time his plan doesn't work because he's too uncomfortable to stay uncomfortable long enough to get the hang of it. Now Sully really is ready to throw in the towel, return to Hollywood, and sort things out. Everything he tried backfired, so what's the use? Besides, he's begun to suspect that there's something sordid about being a voyeur at the table of human suffering. It feels too much like tempting fate. And in the beware of what you wish for category, that's exactly when life steps in and raises the stakes big time. A hobo steals Sully's shoes, one of which has a studio ID card sewn into the sole, and is pulverized by a railroad train. The cops, finding the ID card, announce that Sully is dead. However, the actual Sully has been beaten and robbed of the $5 bills he had been giving out to the hobos before returning to Hollywood. In a stupor, he assaults a railroad cop and is arrested. He tells them who he is, fully expecting that to be that, but without ID and the headlines full of the news of his death, who would believe him? No one. Sully is convicted and sent to a prison work camp where at last life bestows upon him the very experience he had been seeking, human suffering, without an escape clause. Goal met. Now, when he gets back to Hollywood, he'll have the know-how to make a picture about genuine human suffering. Except the lesson he ultimately learns is the exact opposite of what he'd expected. Because now he knows firsthand that the last thing suffering people want to watch is more people suffering. What they want is a break from suffering. They want to laugh and for a moment forget about everything that's wrong in their lives. They want to watch movies like Hey Hey in the Hayloft and feel how wonderfully silly life can be. And so, in the end, because everything that could go wrong did, and then some, Sully has the experience that a perfect story bestows upon its protagonist. He returns to the place where he began and sees it with new eyes. The world didn't change, he did. Had writer-director Sturgis shown Sully mercy, the film could have ended when Sully realized that try as he might, there's just no way he'd ever have a clue what it feels like to be disenfranchised. And hey, he did he did try pretty hard, didn't he? So it would have been a job well done, right? No. Because until Sully finds himself in prison with no way out, everything has been on his terms. And a test on your own terms is no test at all. Sturgis knew this, knew this so rather than swooping in at the 11th hour and saving Sully from a chain gang, he stepped back and let life have a whack at him. And so, in so doing, he actually did Sully a huge favor. As the saying goes, no man is more unhappy than the one who is never in adversity. The greatest affliction of life is never to be afflicted. Only by making sure Sully was extremely afflicted did Sturgis give him the opportunity to become a better man?